This podcast is brought to you by Pearson, the company behind the Self, Goldman Fristo, and the brand new PPVT5 and EVT3. These new, easy-to-use vocabulary assessments are brief and reliable for children age two and a half all the way up to adults age 90 and beyond. Learn more about these new tests at pearsonclinical.com slash exceptional. Welcome to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Madel, joined with Chris Bouquet. How are you doing, Chris? I'm fantastic. Happy New Year, Rachel. I know. Can you believe it's January already? Yeah, it's amazing how fast it goes. I know. So I'm really excited for today's interview. I was so upset that I wasn't able to make it to the interview with you guys. But Chris, tell us a little bit about who we're talking to today. So today, this is Russell Cross. And uh, Russell Cross is someone who's worked at the Pranky Romich company for many, many years. But he's known in the industry for his, I mean, for many things, I guess. But uh, what we talk about with the interview is specifically his linguistic background. Uh, some, I learned from him, and, and one of the reasons I brought wanted to bring him on the podcast was to talk specifically about this concept called phrasal verbs. Have you heard of phrase, phrasal verbs, Rachel? I have, actually. Um, but I'm really excited because I feel like it's an area that I, I, I know about, but I want to I know a little bit more about. And I'm really excited to talk with you today about it because I think that a lot of our listeners will be uh, intrigued. You know, maybe they don't know what phrasal verbs are, um, or maybe they do like me, but they're interested in learning a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, I think they're an interesting concept. So let's start with um, by defining them, right? So what is a phrasal verb? Because when people hear that term phrasal verb, like what does that even mean, right? And so I think a lot of people who listen to this podcast, they're already familiar with core vocabulary words. They know that those are the most frequently used words. But here's kind of the interesting thing about those core vocabulary words is that sometimes when you put those words together with other words, they change the meaning. So let me give you an example. I think the best way to talk about phrasal verbs and explain what what they are is to give examples. So when I say put on, right, uh, what does that mean? What does put on mean? It means to get dressed. To get dressed, right? Yeah. Yeah, to get dressed, like put on your coat. So, but if you look at the word put and you look at the word on, those two words separately, you wouldn't conjure some image of a, of a coat, right? Put means like take a thing and place it someplace. And on means either to turn something, you know, to activate something on and off or to put something physically located on an object. I don't even know how to describe it. Put it here, you know, uh, above something or have it rest on something. But when you put the words put and on together, it means get dressed. Let's, let's do some others, right? right? So just to give some examples, what, is the, what does the word takeout mean? I mean, it could mean some really greasy Asian food. Exactly, right? Uh, how about pick up? Get things really clean. Yeah, right? Okay. It, it means like clean, exactly. Usually these phrasal verbs have some sort of uh, verb that is associated with these two words when you put them together, right? So go out. Leave. Uh, well, it feels like a quiz now, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. Really and I feel quizzing. like I'm like really <laughs> nervous that I'm going to fail. <laughs> yeah. How about get down? Uh, dancing. Yes. Get over it. Yeah, move on really quickly. <laughs> yeah, move on. Exactly, right? This is feeling like, a, like a, a game we could develop, the phrasal verb game. Like it seems like we could market this and make it a, uh, an actual board game people play. Maybe, maybe something like that is already created. Well, you know what I think is really interesting is that 
these are all really important for, especially I think kids with autism, you know, they're almost like idioms in a lot of ways, right? It just, it completely changes the meaning when you put these words together. Understandably so, I think that probably kids with autism, and I know the kids that I work with, they struggle with these because it's very abstract. Well, exactly. I mean, I think oftentimes you have people that, I know we advocate for this approach, is the idea that uh, there's a core word of the week or words of the week approach, right? We've talked about that many times on the podcast. So you might teach the word get one week. You might teach the word over. You might teach uh, the pronoun it. But are you teaching get over it, all three of those at some point together explicitly because someday, in order to use each of those words appropriately, you need to know how they combine with other words. It's sort of like, if you're thinking of um, uh, articulation, it's sort of like co-articulation, you know? The, the sounds go together. They don't just live in isolation. Well, these words go together. They don't just live in isolation. And when you put them together, they have an entirely new meaning. Yeah, which actually kind of turns everything that I m try to teach people about AAC and vocabulary kind of turns it on its head in a lot of ways. Because what I'm seeing a lot of, you know, teachers and other SLPs, they're doing a lot with quick fire phrases or social phrases. Um, I work with a lot of ABA teams and you know, they're teaching, let's play, you know, these kind of carrier phrases, you know, I need the, um, you know, and kids with autism, especially, they're able to learn these phrases, but they're not understanding the individual units. So a lot of times I'm kind of having to go back in my approach and say, okay, you know, I understand that they can use this script, but I don't think they actually understand the concept of each of these units. You know, the perfect example is the I want phrase. Um, we typically teach I want in a chunked phrase, but then, you know, it's, it's really hard sometimes for kids with autism. They, they overgeneralize the I want, you know, so it's, I want, you know, iPad, I want train, I want, I want, I want, but then they can't switch it to say mommy wants or you want or want more um, because they're stuck in the I want script. So it's really interesting to think about this. It is really important to, to sometimes teach, especially these phrasal verbs, you know, so it's kind of a balancing act in a lot of ways. We need to make sure that we're teaching the foundational concepts and these words as single units, but then also, you know, we don't use, we don't want, you know, children to use just single words. We want to teach them how to expand. So it's definitely feels like a, a balancing act. So uh, Russell and I get into it a little bit, but there's some research that goes behind this that was really kind of like tickling me, like tickling my curiosity button, right? It was like, wow, how often do we use these phrasal verbs? Because it could be really easy to be like, yeah, okay, that's somewhere down the line I'm going to get to that. We're going to be combining those. Like, I just got to get kids to understand the word go and the word on before I teach them those two together mean continue, go on, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I think it's an easy thing to kind of to pass off. But then when I started to look at the research, the research shows, um, there's a research article that we talk about by uh, Regel um, in 2004. We'll make sure we link it in the show notes. that talks about how uh, for a typically developing child, some of these phrasal verbs happen very, very early. Like, like when they start combining two words, uh, like a, at a year or somewhere between a year and a half and two is when many, many, many phrasal verbs start to come out. Like uh, they, they start to emerge in children. So it, it's not something that happens later on in life for, um, for typically developing children, which makes me think for students that are using AAC, we should be introducing those concepts uh, relatively early. 
No, absolutely. And what's, it's so fascinating to me when you think about typical language development and how there's no direct instruction, right? Kids just learn through the input that they're given. And so I think that the the lesson here is that we need to give the AAC input, right? We need to give the exposure for kids. Um, and from a really early age, I think that we need to get beyond this idea that, you know, oh, well, they won't understand that. Well, of course, you know, we need tons and tons of exposures before we start understanding, but it doesn't mean that we don't give the exposures until, you know, a child's quote unquote ready. So I think that you can never go wrong exposing children to language on their AAC device. Um, I think it's, it's, we always talk about the the least dangerous presumption, right? Um, And so I think that this is a perfect example of that. You know, it doesn't hurt to show how we, how, you know, these words combined together, it changes the meaning. I don't know. What do you think, Chris? Yeah, well, I think that's exactly how my approach and, and my philosophy and what I try and tell teachers or expose teachers to is that idea that um, they should be explicitly planned. So even if they weren't explicitly planning how to teach go and on, if they could at least be modeling it passively without the expectation that the student is going to use it immediately, but still let's model it on the device. That, and then, and then, and then once they learn go and on, maybe not even wait till they've learned it, but once we've exposed them to go and on separately a number of times, let's actually plan for it explicitly. Let's do a lesson for go on. Uh, let's teach some of these phrasal verbs explicitly as a lesson. Let's plan for it and show them that go just doesn't mean going through that door or going into the bathroom. And on doesn't, doesn't just mean touching the light switch or uh, taking a physical object and placing it you know, on top of a thing, but that when you put those two words together, go on, it means I'm, I'm waiting for more, continue, go, go on, go on, go on. And I could go on and on and on with this, Rachel. No, you know, and something else that I really think is important to do that I oftentimes will do during my sessions is I explain to kids what I'm doing and you know, sometimes I'll never forget. I once had a teacher or no, she was a, it was a paraprofessional and she was observing one of my sessions and I forget exactly what was happening, but I was talking to the student who was nonverbal using AAC and I was talking to them, you know, the same way that I would be talking to, you know, a 10 year old who didn't use AAC. I said, okay, now we're going to work on this because this is really important. And I forget exactly what I was saying, but the paraprofessional said like, you know, it's really interesting that you're talking to him like that because like he doesn't understand. And I said, well, you know, first of all, we don't know what he understands. So um, I'm going to just assume that he understands everything. And I also think it's important to give context for kids. Um, You know, why is it that we're working on these things? And so this came up for me when you were talking about this, because it feels like it's very easy to say, you know, when we put go and on together, it actually changes it to mean something different. It means to keep going. Um, And I think it's something that we can just say out loud. I think oftentimes as speech therapists, we think, oh, like, I don't know if I should talk about this or, you know, I think that kids really appreciate knowing why we're asking them to do certain things and what we're doing and how that fits into like a bigger picture, you know, and I think we can take that lesson for all kids that we work with, not just AAC clients, um, but just in general, you know, talking with kids, like this is really important, you know, for an articulation case, I might say, yeah, like we come and you come with me every week and we sent, we practice words. So they come out a little bit more clear. So 
all your friends can understand what you say. You know, I think that that's something that like, I was never taught to do that in grad school, but I just started thinking kids are probably really confused. Like, okay, every week this lady comes with a bag and then I go into like a special room, you know, what, what are we doing here? And so I think that it's just like, we can be more transparent with the kids that we're working with um, and how we're talking to them about what we're doing. I just love everything, everything that you just said. It makes total sense, right? We have to let kids be part of understanding why they're doing what they're doing so that, uh, that they're more purposeful about it, right? Otherwise, it's just like, it seems like they're playing games, you know? So uh, there's something else that, that Russell and I touch on a little bit here. And I, I think, again, if we ask most people, uh, tell us about the two different types of, of vocabulary, right? People would say, well, there's core vocabulary and fringe vocabulary, right? Um, but what Russell and I talk about a little bit in the interview, Rachel, is this third category, which I think we talk about sometimes, but it's not often named. So that is that, that, that category where it, I guess it would fall into fringe, but it's vocabulary that is really important to the student, right? So I often think the, the example that comes to my mind is the word hurricane. Hurricane is the name of our dog, my family dog, right? So if my children or if I suddenly needed AAC right away, hurricane is a, is a fringe vocabulary word that is really important to us. We say it often in our house, you know, hurricane, get down. Oh, that mixed hurricane and phrasal verb right there. But, um, Mind blown. <laughs> we yell... <laughs> We yell hurricane all the time or say hurricane all the time because it's a word that is key to my life. And so that's what Russell sort of advocates for is to, to not think of these two vocabulary terms, core vocabulary and fringe vocabulary, but think of it as three, core vocabulary, fringe vocabulary, and key vocabulary, vocabulary that is key to the individual. I've also heard this called personal core. Sure. Sure. So- I, 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 it's yeah, two different names for the, for the same concept. Um, that, that personal core is sort of puts that, those words in the core vocabulary bubble, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and other people would say, yeah, but it's a fringe vocabulary term. Hurricane is a proper noun that you're using. That's fringe vocabulary. You, don't, you could get through your whole life without, it, without saying the word hurricane. Yes, I could, but it, hurricane is our dog, so I don't want to just call it dog. You know, I want to be like hurricane. So, yeah. <laughs> Right. Or um, wouldn't it even be dog? So yeah, right? It would I, be I, like I, it. It. Yes. Exactly. Dog is another thing. Right. How am I totally. going to talk about my dog? <laughs> yes. And, and so key vocabulary is su- super important or personal core, if you want to call it that, is, is super important to, to be considering and finding the, the balance for how often you have that. You know, a quick phenomenon here is that um, the key vocabulary words sometimes adjusts based on time of year and your geography, right? Uh, which again, it wouldn't necessarily be personal core at that point if it's based on time of year or, um, or geography. So for, so for instance, um, at the time of this week, it's right around the holidays, right? We're just finishing with the holidays. So around holiday time, you have certain words that are used more frequently, you know? You'd want to maybe be practicing the word Santa, if that's, you know, if that's something you, uh, you do in your family, you know, you'd want to know the word reindeer or, 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 you know, or you could see how there would be certain seasonal or topic uh, words that are, that are, you know, if it was Halloween time, maybe you'd want pumpkin on there, you know, because it's something that you use or say much more frequently at that time of year, you know, or leaf if it was autumn time. 
which are fringe vocabulary words, but based on the time of year, the, their usage might go way, way, way up. Or geographically, you know, if you lived in Southern Florida, maybe hurricane would be a word on your device because that's something that you talk about during certain times of the year. And because you're geographically located near to a place that has more hurricanes, you know, where out in California or in Philadelphia or in Virginia, you don't have that as often. So you don't need that word. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What do you think? No, I think that's exactly right. Um, I'm actually thinking about like, cause I mean, it feels like everything we do is such a balance, right? Um, and I think especially with the core versus fringe whole phenomenon, um, I'm actually working, uh, doing some consulting with a school right now. And I'm really excited because people are, you know, really getting pumped about AAC and I can teach them all that I have to, to know. And actually I'm doing an in-service with them soon. And I'm just going to kind of teach them the fundamentals of AAC, even though I've kind of been teaching as we've gone along. And um, a lot of what we're doing is programming very specific fringe vocabulary on the devices so that, you know, when we're learning about all these lessons, and I feel like the beginning of the year, it's just like from one holiday to the next. You go from Halloween to Thanksgiving to like, you know, Christmas, Hanukkah. Um, And so there's lots of different fringe vocabulary, especially that goes along with that. Um, And so it feels like, I went into the school year being like, yes, we're going to do a core word approach. We're going to teach everybody the importance of core words. And then, you know, now it's, it's January and I'm thinking, we didn't really get to the core words as much as I really wanted to. Um, And so I've been kind of struggling with how do I impress the importance of core and, you know, while still keeping the momentum, because right now the momentum is really high. We're just getting used to devices. And now I have some of the other therapists in the, in the school asking me if I can add vocabulary to the devices. And so they're thinking through the lens of how can I help these children communicate during my sessions and during the lessons that we're providing. And so I'm excited about that, but I also feel kind of like, uh, like we're adding like you know, leaves and all these like fringe vocabulary words that, you know, yes, are important to the lesson and all these things. But, you know, we're talking about kids with very complex communication needs who can't get their functional wants and needs met. And so like, for me, I'm like, we really need to like model the core and like core is really important. So anyway, I just feel kind of, kind of conflicted. That's just a personal anecdote uh, that I've been struggling with. How do I keep the momentum up? with everyone that's so excited about AAC um, while also starting to incorporate more core into the mix. What do you think, Chris? Well, here's what I'm, my question is. Do you get to do job embedded coaching? Like do you get to go into the classrooms or is it only on a pull-out model where you're, you're teaching them how to program the devices and talk to them? So I think part of it is we have, um, we had kind of a lot of um, instability in the beginning of the school year because we needed, we had a teacher and then the teacher left and there's a lot of things going on. So I was super gung-ho in the beginning, like, yes, we're going to push in all the time. And then it was just like, all these new teachers coming in and aides and subs and all these things. And I was like, this seems like a lot. I'm starting, I just need to get to know these kids. And so we started pulling them out and they, they, you know, just getting to know them. And so now I'm like, I still do push in, but it feels a little bit harder. Um, so, so I do have the opportunity though to model and things like that. And especially when there's lessons, um, it feels like it needs to be done in advance because a lot of times I'll be pushing into the lesson and I'm sure some of you SLPs can relate out there. I don't want to step on anyone's toes, right? 
I don't want to come in and be like, oh, this lesson was great, but like I would have done it like this. You know, in a lot of ways we have to do that because that's, you know, what we bring to the table, right? Is our expertise about communication. So, you know, I have to do that. But at the same time, I'm like, uh, it feels like this, this very delicate situation that I need to, to handle, especially when it comes to just a lesson, like a lesson that I'm pushing into with a teacher. So I don't know. What do you think? Hmm. Well, it, 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 of course, parallels what I do on a day-to-day basis with um, coaching communication partners and working with teachers. And it reminded me of a story that I, just uh, something that happened really, really recently with me is that I was working with a teacher that was sort of brand new to AAC. Um, and we, it was just her and I in a pullout session uh, uh, because the, how it works is her teaching assistants are covering the class while she could, could come out and be with me. And then she would go back in and one of the assistants would come out with me, right? And this way we could get through everybody and, and everyone gets to spend a little time with Chris, right? Um, while the classroom continues to run, right? You're building the airplane as you're flying it, if you will. Um, So uh, what we talked about with the teacher is we did this core word of the week approach. So we're going to do in and out. Uh, She knows where the fringe vocabulary is for like snacks and and, and uh, many of her students know where they are. So she's good on on the fringe and she knows how to use the device in that capacity. She was struggling with how to implement core, which I think is like how do you, what your question is, is like how do you start implementing the, the core vocabulary? And so we said we started with in and out, and we did a task analysis for her day, meaning okay, um, let's start with uh, you. The kids come off the bus. How can you practice in and out when the kids come off the bus? She's like, well, well, they they, they come off the bus and they come to the front door. It's like, and what happens? Well, they come through the door and they well wait, stop right there. What do they do? She's like, well, they go in. I'm like, okay, so what can we do? She's like, well, I guess I could stop them at the door and they could, they could all say in. And I said, yeah, that's awesome. They could say in. And if they could say it verbally, great. And if not, then you model on the device. Um, and maybe, maybe even if you had an extra device or if you took one of the other kids' devices and held it up, they all push in to walk in the door. So kid number one pushes in on the device, he gets to go through the door. Kid number two pushes in on the device, he can go through the, through the door. Kid number three, who actually needs the device, right? Maybe it's that kid's device. He pushes in and he goes through the door because he just had two models in front of him and he's got you there to show him what in is if he gets stuck. You can do your, your prompting. Um, she wasn't thinking of teaching core vocabulary by coming off the bus and walking down the hallway and going through the door. And, the, and she was thinking of it as a lesson which of course I love. I want her thinking of that too, right? I'd love for her to, to have a, 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 a 20 minute lesson where she's got a, a bucket in front of her and she's got all these things kids have to throw in. You know what I mean? And um, they have to request in before she lifts, lifts the lid of the bucket and they put it in. I mean, I love that too, but just in the natural context of the day, look, you don't really have to change anything. The kids are coming off the bus. They're going into the building. They're walking down the hall. They're going to go into the classroom, which by the way, you're going to do the same thing again when they came into the, into the school. Now you can do it when they go into their classroom. And it just, it, you could see uh, on her face the, the freedom that was coming. She was like, oh, I was struggling how I was going to teach this and, um, and volcanoes and animals and and how I was going to fit this all in. And you're just saying I can do this like in the context of what my day out already flows. It's like, absolutely you can. So maybe that's an approach is, is to find the time in between the lessons to work on the core vocabulary. 
Yeah, I love it. And actually, we did go and stop in the beginning of the year. And what we did to just get kids acclimated, because this is a brand new school, and we kind of did like a field trip within the school. And so we went to different places, like we went to the kitchen, and then we went to, you know, the gym, and we went to all these places. We had tons of visual supports, but we were working on go. And so we were like, before we were getting ready to leave, I'd say, okay, now we're going to go to the kitchen. And so we had so many visual supports and kids were so excited. And then we would move. And then like when we would get there, it's like, okay, stop. And of course I would model on the devices. Um, so that was a really great activity that we did in the beginning of the year, just getting kids acclimated to the new environment, um, showing them where all the things are. And it was super simple. I mean, we went on a field trip. Kids were really excited because they got to like, you know, move around the school and it felt like something special. So, um, but yeah, I think you're exactly right. Finding opportunities in between the lesson times to work on that core is really, really great. Um, and I think that it's important to try to think through the lens of this will work for all kids right? So like a lot of times we get very specific about, okay, you know, I have this kid who's working on this and I have this kid who's working on that. Um, and being able to say, okay, I think we can do go and stop with every kid. I think we can do in and out with every kid. Um, and maybe that you take it to the next level and you can expand for those kids that are using, you know, multiple words. Absolutely. Um, but I think with the foundation of just finding activities where you can support that core word or those core, core word pairs is really really beneficial. Yeah. Imagine the kids that um, could be using those, fr those phrasal verbs. You could be teaching them on the device, go on. So you could scaffold it. Not every kid has to say, go on. Some could say, go, right? Uh, and so we, uh, speaking of go on, we could go on and on and on about this, Rachel, but maybe we should get to the interview here in a second. In the interview, I say it, it's sort of like the matrix. When, once you learn about phrasal verbs, you start to see them everywhere and you start to realize how often we use them. And then you, then it becomes, at least it did for me, it was like, oh my gosh, now I know these exist. Now I should be teaching them. I should be teaching them more explicitly. It's because at first you're just like, I don't have time for that. You know? Well, maybe you can do kind of similar to the core word of a week approach. We can do a phrasal verb of a week or a phrasal verb of the month or something like that um, to systematically go through and say, okay, you know, in addition to the core words of the week, I'm also going to teach a phrasal verb. So I think that anytime you can make something systematic, it's, it's a lot easier for that, that new habit or uh, process to stick. I got it. I got it, Rachel. It's phrasal Fridays, right? Ooh. You practice the core word all week long. Monday through Thursday, and on Friday, you start to introduce it with other words. Phrasal Fridays, it's a thing now. <laughs> Absolutely. So if you guys haven't already, please do subscribe to our podcast. That way you'll get updated every single time we have a new episode. And the Facebook group, it's popping off. If you're not in the Facebook group, please join us because we have so many people in there asking awesome questions, bringing up really relevant discussions all surrounding AAC. I was going to say, the, the Facebook group is taking off. <laughs> get <laughs> Oh, well, I'm really excited to, to now head into the interview uh, that Chris does with Russell Cross. So before we head into the interview, here's a quick message from Exceptional Ed. 
Hi, I'm Matt Hott, one of the hosts of Speech Science, a weekly podcast bringing you all the information that you can handle related to speech sciences and disabilities. Michelle Wintering, Michael McLeod, and I interview leaders and difference makers in the field. Every Tuesday, we drop a new episode. You can find us on iTunes, Android, and on our website, www.speechscience.org slash speech science podcast. Join us as we try to find the answers to the question. What is communication? Welcome to the Talking With Tech podcast. My name is Chris Bouguet, and I'm here with Russell Cross. Hey, how are you doing, Russell? I'm doing just fine. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for being here on the podcast. Uh, so, Russell, for those that don't know who you are, can you tell, give people a little background? What do you do? What, what's, your, what's your experience with AAC? Well, currently I work at Pranky Romic Company. So um, I'm in the sort of research department there and have been now for almost 30 years. Um, next year is a... It's a double whammy next year because it's uh, 30 years of working with PRC and I hit the 60 in terms of age, which means I have literally spent half my life working for the same company. And that's that's very strange these days. I think I'm the last of those uh, type of people who've done that. So, uh, But I started working in AAC back in the UK, as people can probably hear, my accent isn't native to, to Ohio, but I started uh, in AAC um, many years ago. And uh, like a lot of people, the reason I became the AAC person was because when we first got a computer delivered to the hospital, I plugged it in. And the person who does that suddenly becomes the tech expert. So um, uh, that, was, that was my introduction to AAC, I think, from, a, uh, from being part of the profession, so to speak. And strangely enough, w w this was back in the early 80s. So there were not a lot of pieces of technology that were already there for uh, AAC. So I wrote a piece of software. Uh, this was in BASIC, you know, you had to do it uh, at that time. So I wrote a piece of software which I thought was spectacularly good. And let me tell you how it worked. What happened is that there was a grid on the screen. If you can imagine this grid with squares, and in the squares were words. And what happened was that you hit the space bar, and the bar would scan um, through the rows, and then you hit it again, it would go through the columns, and then you hit it a third time, and the word would come up on the screen. And what you did was you did this, and you, you, you created sentences. And, you know, wow, I thought, this is great. Because at the time, of course, this was fairly radical stuff. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so I built this, this program. I uh, was working with a client in a center there who had some severe physical and uh, cognitive and intellectual disabilities. But... I took the system along and I was all proud of the system and thought this would be great and showed it to him, demonstrated it, and he tried it for about two, three minutes and then promptly pushed the, the keyboard to one side and never did it again. <laughs> and I think the object lesson that I took from that, which has stuck with me forever, was that technology is not the only answer. You know, and, and most of us get to the point where we think, you know, originally you think, oh, if we just give people a piece of tech, 
that'll do it. That's that solved the problem. Um, but this was a great example for me after spending hours and hours of trying to program this to discover that there was more to it than just giving somebody a piece of technology. So that was the life lesson learned, really. And so I was working as a general SLP, but in, uh, more in um, AAC for some time before I joined Pranky Romic. Um, they had a distributor in the UK who's, they're still there, called Liberator Limited. Um, they, uh, I started with them in 1989. So um, it's a long, long time ago. April the 1st, April Fool's Day was when I started. So I worked with them for maybe six years and then I was offered the post here in the US at the Worcester headquarters to work on the, the what became the Unity application. So if anybody's using any PLC equipment, they'll be familiar with the Unity language system, which is now sort of 25 plus years, uh, I think it's 25 plus years old now, but I was one of the original um, creators of the system. And my plan was to come here for at least two years. So I stayed for two years. My wife and I made the commitment to say, if we don't like it after two years, we'll go back. But here we are, uh, 30 years later, uh, still here. Uh, my kids are grown up. I have grandchildren. I mean, we're just um, we're just gone native, I think. So well, congratulations, 30 years in one place. That is uh, that's something we have in common. In that I've been working for Loudoun County Public Schools for 20 years. So. It's, it's rare though, right? Most people don't. It's three or four years stint someplace before you're on someplace else. It is. And it's something that we just only just sort of noticed at PRC because uh, a lot of folks at PRC are also lifers. You know, they've been there forever and ever and ever. Um, but more recently, as we've been expanding, you know, we've been taking on new people. So we've seen a bit more, uh, a little bit more turnover than usual. And it'll be interesting to see over the next 30 years, you know, whether we have longevity or whether there's a bigger turnover in general, because that's how people tend to work these days. But but you're right. I think between the two of us, that means we've had 50 years at the same place <laughs> of some sort. So, um, you know, Russell, I think another uh, point there that, that you brought up is so true today, just as it was back in the day when you programmed that uh, that piece of equipment for that gentleman who pushed it away, right? So often do I find... Uh, people think, well, we'll just give this kid an iPad or we'll give them this kid some piece of device and we slop it down in front of them. That will be some sort of the magic box will be the answer to all things. It's like it's not, it's all about the interaction and how you teach someone to use the device it is much more of the, 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 the magic sauce, if you will, than just yeah. the, the, the tech, you know? It's, it's interesting that uh, even now, when we've had technology like AAC technology now for a long time, really, but it's still a lesson that some you know, folks have to learn at some point that the tech is not just uh, the thing that you give and there's a lot more to it. And um, the idea that, well, at some point we'll all be replaced by pieces of technology, you won't need the human, this really doesn't happen. And in fact, you know, there's a really good argument I think we all have that once you give people a piece of technology, you need more help, more information. You need somebody to guide you through it. And um, the cost of the technology may, you know, it can run from a few hundred bucks to, to thousands. But actually the biggest cost long term is going to be the intervention that somebody has. And it's worth that because that, you know, to get somebody to the peak of their communication performance is important. But the, the box that you give them is, is, is almost the cheaper end of it. It's the human uh, side that is expensive. 
I, I, I try and bring that point home all the time to the administrators that I get to talk to is because they, they see the dollar sign that, that is hung around the, uh, the price tag on the piece of equipment. But that, that is finite. You pay it once, really. It's the ongoing therapy that you need. And for some reason, they'll, they'll have no problem. An administrator will be like, yeah, put 30 more minutes on that, uh, on that IEP or, or put another 60 minutes. And maybe that they don't even blink an eye at, even though that's yeah. way more expensive than buying right. one, one piece of equipment. And, and, you know, the, the amount of time that uh, clinicians also have to put in, um, you know, not in contact with a client, it's all the contact time, and so much of the time ends up not being able to be billed. So there's a hidden cost there where you find that clinicians uh, and educators are actually spending time doing something to improve the life of a client, and they're doing it really in their own time. And that's a cost that you don't see because it's really work for free. And um, so, so the, the whole idea that the technology that is the answer uh, certainly isn't the answer. Um, but it's really hard, I think, to, to argue that um, you, know, you need to spend a lot more money on people than you do with the technology. Because to a certain extent, sometimes you feel that a funding authority feels that it's done its job if it has paid for a piece of technology. I've done my job. That's what I have to do. That's what uh, you know. That, that's that's what the law says I have to do, and I've done it. And there's still a long way to go. Yeah, absolutely. Now, so something else that is not necessarily a magic answer. I think we're finding here in uh, in, in in working with AAC is the concept of core vocabulary. Meaning core vocabulary, you know, we and I, we've been fans of the concept for, for ages, right? But again, it is not some sort of magic bullet that all of a sudden, now that we have the concept of core vocabulary and maybe a therapist knows about the concept of core vocabulary, that suddenly you can now teach somebody about core vocabulary. Right. And one of the reasons we kind of wanted to, I wanted to have you on is this, um, something you taught me about a couple of years ago and I've been fascinated with the concept and I, when I get to present, I bring it up as a question all the time. And I just wanted to, to, to get in deeper with this one particular concept in general is the concept of phrasal verbs. So right. um, you and I participated together in a, the, the PRC does a research journal club. Um, mm -hmm. There's one going on right now while we're recording. Um, I mean, you know, there's one out happening. It's not happening right. literally right now while we're recording the, <laughs> um, but uh, uh, we participated in the uh, inaugural one, the very first one, and you presented some research on uh, phrasal verbs. And it had been like the first time I had even really heard of or thought of the concept. And so can you tell people about phrasal verbs and kind of why they're important? Let's talk about it. Yeah, and, and this is certainly not a sort of topic that you certainly find that people are keen to hear about at the local bar, you know, so you don't sit down and say, you know, I might say, how about those Browns or Indians are doing well this year? Hey, let me tell you about phrasal verbs, you know, that doesn't really happen. But but, but for those of us who are really fascinated by language, I was as, as, as excited by you in a sense when I discovered this paper, because um, I've been doing some uh, work for a while in the area of corpus linguistics, you know, that's a um, I should mention that before I did speech pathology, I, uh, I did psychology and linguistics. So um, I have a linguistic background. But uh, I've been taking some time looking at corpus linguistics as a discipline. And this is a paper that is uh, based on both corpus linguistics and teaching English as a second language. So this was from outside AAC. And I can't Wait, remember let me how ask you. For those yeah. that don't know, what exactly is corpus linguistics? As a, you know, it's like another again, a big high-level word that a lot of people like heard of, but don't really know what it means. 
Yeah, well, you know, given that linguistics is, you know, the science of language and languages, uh, and not how many languages you can speak, but, you know, linguistics as in the structures of language and how language works and functions, um, there are, just like in, in speech pathology, there are subsets of uh, the profession. Well, there are subcategories in linguistics, and one of the fields is corpus linguistics. And what corpus linguistics does is to look at really, really, really big sets of data, a corpus or multiple corpuses. And when you get really big sets of data, you can start to see very interesting things happening in language because our everyday experience of, uh, of languages, you know, we talk to people, we communicate, um, but we don't get to hear what millions upon millions upon millions of people are doing. And it's only in the past, say, 20 years with the computer technology that people have been able to collect really big samples of language. And there are now corpora out there that are looking at things like 1.5 billion words, you know, they and they're trawling the internet every day to look at new words and how they do. So we have a much better way these days of looking at real language and how it's used and also counting those numbers because, you know, as, as we're all into evidence-based practice, one of the things we all want to be able to do is to uh, look at objective data. So this particular paper that I was looking at was, was uh, by a couple of folks who are working in corpus linguistics, um, but are also looking at this from the point of view of teaching people uh, English as a second language, because it's almost like what we do. You know, if you're learning a second language, actually a, a good teacher of a second language will teach you the core vocabulary. They'll teach you the words you're going to use a lot. So they'll teach you your pronouns, your to be verb, to have verb, and they'll teach you all the words that are going to be really important. And then later on, you can learn the Spanish for aardvark or cucumber or uh, dodecahedron. You know, you can learn those later. Um, but if you can say uh, it's a thing that has lots of edges, and then you've got the idea of a dodecahedron already there. So this is where this, this was coming from. And what they were particularly interested in is a phenomenon in English, of, of what's sort of called the phrasal verb. But in general, a phrasal verb technically is a subset of something called a multi-part verb. Let me tell you what a multi-part verb is. It's a verb that has little bits added on, typically prepositions. So look over, um, turn about, turn on, uh, uh, look up, look down. And so what you have is a verb and it's tagged on to something else. So um, those phrasal verbs are interesting because, uh, and this was a statistic that I was not aware, this is a statistic that was really interesting. Um, and I, I'm gonna read you exactly what it says from the paper, because it says that they looked at a 100 million word sample. So that's rather big. So they looked at this 100 million words, and they said that there was a small subset of 20 lexical verbs combined with eight adverbial particles that accounted for over a half of all the occurrences of phrasal verbs that were in that corpus. So just to go back again, that meant there were 20 verbs and basically eight prepositions that accounted for over half the phrasal verbs that were actually in there. So I was really fascinated by that, by the fact that you get so much bang for buck by looking at uh, just a small number. And what was also really interesting about those words is that the top 20 words, those top 20 verbs that they have, are words like uh, get, go, look, 
pick turn wow look at that cool words you know cool and then, words, you, right? you, then you look at the particles and uh, some of these words can be either prepositions or adverbs nice to call them particles because they're just bits you don't have to worry about you know exactly what they're doing but it's words like in off up down back on so you core look at those core vocabulary so what what strikes me there is that if you are teaching these verbs uh, and um, particles in isolation you know you're, you're teaching the word look or put or go and then you're also teaching in on and under you're not that far away from being able to to talk about things like yeah you know those those verbs like get up go down strut your funky stuff um <laughs> <laughs> so uh you know run into back up come across uh, give up put down so um it, that was what really struck me from the AAC perspective, that here we have uh, a feature of language, which is the phrasal verb, and we use them all the time. And kids use them all the time as well. They, kids can learn these. You, you, there's, a, a, again, other papers you can look at, but I was looking at one earlier today just to, to, to remind me. Um, this is a case study, a single case study, and we got a kid of like, uh, you know, two, two and a half years of age able to use a phrasal verb. You know, they, they do things. And um, let me give you an idea of the sort of things that phrasal verbs can also do is that you can um, sometimes they yoke together so that the verb and the particle can't be split, but other times you can split them up. So if you say, put on your coat, so put on is your phrasal verb. Mm -hmm. But actually, you can also say, put your coat on. Uh, you can say, uh, take off your coat, take your coat off, take it off. So there are ones like that that can split up and, and, and you can teach that. So, uh, but that's how the words actually work in real life. So if you're focusing on teaching core vocabulary, you're also laying the foundation, I think, for, being, for people being able to use and understand these phrasal verbs. I like to, to say that expressively we may all have, or our clients may not be expressing a lot, but they actually tend to live in a sea of words. They are surrounded by words. They hear words every day. Even the kid who spends their time just looking at an iPad, watching YouTube videos, they're actually awash with words and they're hearing these things. And they will be hearing phrasal verbs uh, and they will be hearing core vocabulary. So that notion of taking things from other disciplines such as ESL um, and the English language learning and taking from corpus linguistics was something that I thought was particularly fascinating. And then uh, as a result of this, you know, read this one paper. If, if folks want to go to the uh, www.speechdudes.com, because um, Speech Dudes is, I am one of them, but there's a post on there which is real easy to read, and it, it's, it's just called Phrasal Verbs. Uh, and, and I should actually, the title was 28 Words to Boost Your Clients' Vocabulary, Maximum Bang for Buck. But if you want to go there, just go to the speechdudes.com, search for uh, Phrasal Verbs, and it's there, or even Bang for Buck. And we'll definitely we'll definitely put that in the show notes. So let, let me break that down just a little bit, Russell. Just um, so phrasal verbs, by their very nature, mean that they have their multiple words put together to have some sort of similar meaning, right? So, right, right. like um, turn it up means louder, for yeah. instance, right? And so th those would be two different ways to say the same thing. It's like a phrasal verb is almost like a synonym for another verb or another word. 
And, and actually, the thing about phrasal verbs is that they can also have, like you were saying, their multiple meanings, you know. So, uh, you know, to uh, turn up, you can turn up the thing, but I can turn up at school. Um, you know, yeah, I can sure. turn up for a party. And what's interesting there is that the two are actually slightly different because I can say the turn up the heat or turn it up. But if I say, I turned, uh, I'm going to turn up at school. I can't say I turned the school up. So right. turn up in that one is one of these yoked phrases. They, you turn up, got to go together. You can't split it. Turn something up, you can split it. So this is one of the things about phrasal verbs that also makes them interesting is that they have multiple meanings. Um, that Sometimes they split up, sometimes they hold tight to each other, and they are used an awful lot in, in language. I would suggest to anybody who's listening to this podcast that they go out tonight to the pub, and I always find the pub a good place to do research. They go out to the pub tonight and try and just sit and listen to people. See how many times you can hear people say things like turn up, put down, go around, um, you know, um, give up. I mean, all these things, they're all phrasal verbs. And what's interesting about this, this study I was talking about was another reason for looking at this, or that they were looking at it, was because phrasal verbs are always something that learners of the English language have a hard time with because there's so many of them and they have multiple meanings. And so what the researchers in this study were doing was saying, well, if we can identify the big ones like this top 28 words, then if we teach these 28 words, we're already starting to teach some of the common words used in phrasal verbs. So given that there are so many hundreds and hundreds of phrasal verbs, let's focus on these 28 words and just use them and, and tie them together and yoke them and teach them in that way. And that, to me, said, well, gosh, if that's going to work for English language learners, it could work in AAC as well. You know, Absolutely. Get you 50% of the way there, really, right? <laughs> and Yeah, it does. And so that's the taking the research from the other disciplines is where, where I find it real fascinating, you know, looking at corpus linguistics, um, you know, prior to that paper, you know, I've been working on, uh, you know, we've been developing uh, this online system that we have of analyzing data. And we got a database here that was, it's a tagged database. And that, that just so you can get a database, it's based on thousands and thousands of words. All the words are tagged by parts of speech and frequency. And that database came from the field of corpus linguistics. You know, um, this is a, you know, a researcher at the uh, Brigham Young University, researcher there who spent most of his life looking at large scale corpuses. Anyway, this database formed the basis of a system that, that you know, we designed to analyze data such that, you know, you, you input your data and it will tell you frequencies of data. And you can match frequencies with, with common frequencies. So there's an example of using databases from another field in order to apply to, uh, you know, to what we do in AAC. And certainly on my list of things to do before I retire, you know, there are other things I would like to be able to apply that to in terms of AAC systems based on what I would say is, you know, this real data, these big, big data samples. So Russell, back to phrasal verbs for a second. Uh, the, cause it, we, we can come, we could, you and I, you know, you and I could talk about data all day long. Um, but back to phrasal verbs for a second, cause there's something else I want to talk about is, is the idea that there was another study I think you shared with me. It's maybe not the same study, but it looked at how, how early development happens with them. Like how, how soon do students who are typically developing uh, start to act to, to acquire and use those like how often did the moms use it and the parents and the, the, the caregivers and how often do 
of the students use it. And some of the kids started learning and started using phrasal verbs at a very early age. Like they're starting to put two words together. And as soon as they start to put two words together, they're also starting to use phrasal verbs, right? When I started to read that study, and thinking about how teachers are, uh, going back to what we originally said here at the beginning when I was saying that core vocabulary isn't necessarily a, a magic bullet, what I find, and I really like how you put it, is that teaching core vocabulary is a foundation, right, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. to get you to learn those phrasal verbs. But if you're only teaching words in isolation, meaning I'm gonna, this week I'm going to teach the word get, and next week I'm going to teach the word on, and the next week I'm going to teach the word it. And if you're never trying to combine those together, if you're only doing it, the yeah. core vocabulary in isolation, you will not get to those phrasal verbs anytime soon, you know? Right. Yeah, yeah I, I think you're right. You know, it always strikes me that, that, that this is like opportunity for, for doing something different, for doing something else, you know? So, you know... We can teach get in a particular context and it in this context and then on in the context and then we can teach get it on, get it on, bang it on. We can talk about, you know, get your shoes, but then get your shoes on, you know, and then we can put your shoes on, put on your shoes. And then we can have pick up your pencil, pick it up, pick the pencil up. What we're doing there is using the same word, but we're sliding the words around a little in perfectly acceptable ways. Uh, where you're shifting the the object into a you know different position, but you're using the same vocabulary. And what I'm you know what I would say there is that phrasal verbs just give you another opportunity to to move those words around uh, within a, a particular uh, context. I think the soundbite there, Russell. I think I've heard other other clinicians use it is um, repetition with variation, right? Yes. So, yeah. And so this is what you're saying is you can use the same word in multiple ways and just uh, flip them around. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what what I what I was I think I'm trying to get at is um, when people are planning their lessons and they're mm-hmm. thinking about teaching somebody. Um, perhaps if phrasal verbs is a concept that we don't really talk about, I bet if we put it in the people like, what's a phrasal verb? I don't even know what that is. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm ready to get to the point where maybe, maybe we should be teaching that explicitly. Like right. if, it's, if it's an early developing concept in so many kids, like in their start, just starting to put two words together, then maybe mm-hmm. we have to start teaching these phrases and what they mean and how they replace, or maybe it's in conjunction with, with verbs and the words they, they mean, you know? Right. And I think that the, uh, you know, the way you would, you would go about that is that we, you know, we teach these high frequency verbs, get, put, take, and we can teach them in the sense uh, of just the regular verb on its own. And then we can teach the prepositions, you know, up, on, down, and we can teach them as prepositions. And so you're, you're learning sort of not just the, the core vocabulary, but the core meanings of them, you know, because typically when we talk about the word up, we're talking about lifting things up. So, uh, but then when we put them in things like pick me up, pick it up, pick that thing up, then what we're doing is we're extending the use of the word put and the verb up, and we're using it in a slightly different meaning. And we're using it also as a slightly different, you know, grammatical unit. We're using it as a phrasal verb, prepositional verb, whatever you want to call them. We use it as a multi-unit word. And those are things that we're going to come across these all the time without us even thinking about it. You know, there are many instances of, of, of language where 
we use things so often and we hear things so often that we don't even realize that they're happening because they become transparent, transparent mm -hmm. to the fact that we don't notice them. And you have to start listening. And once you start listening, you hear them so often. So let me give you a, a great example uh, of, of language and language change, because this is, this is a wonderful uh, thing that I've been spotting over the past few years is the, the way in which our language is evolving where we have this new phrase called a whole nother thing. You know, it's a whole nother story. Now, you won't find that written down. It's not written language because what we are doing here is language is evolving. And what you're hearing there is people taking the word another, they're splitting it into a and whole, another. Another doesn't exist on its own. Another is not a word that exists on its own. But what we're seeing there is an evolutionary process in language. And I guarantee if anybody's listening to, to, to us now, wants to go and listen to TV a little later, you listen and you will find people saying a whole nother thing over and over again. And the point I want to get from that is, is two. One is that that's language evolving. Uh, and second is it's something that we don't necessarily hear until we listen for it. And then when we listen for it, we think, my goodness, that's happening all the time. I mean, everybody's saying it. You know, watch CNN or Fox, whatever your, 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 your poison is. You know, the news readers there will be saying uh, a whole nother, a whole nother, a whole nother. But you contrast that with written language where it's not there. So spoken language always evolves or ahead of written language written language catches up uh, later and I, I should mention just the completion because it's the sort of person i am um it, it is interesting that the the word another as a, as a single word actually originally was joined it was the words an and other uh, were, were two separate words it's an other thing and then they became another sort of like you know middle english and then it's now splitting up again, but it's splitting in a different place. Instead of splitting it an and other, it's splitting it a and another. And now we're going to get this word another coming back because the word another, in fact, uh, existed hundreds of years ago and disappeared. So I, I have to say, this sort of thing fascinates me, uh, you know, this evolution of language. But I think what we learn from that is that if we listen to language, we listen to what people are saying and doing, we can actually pick up on things that we didn't think about before. And that's where we go right back to the phrasal verbs, where we think, well, gosh, if we sit and listen long enough, we start hearing them and we say, wow, there's a lot of those about. So that, uh, so that totally parale parallels my experience. When it, it was sort of like the matrix, you know, I took the pill. I'd never even thought of phrasal verbs before. I took the pill, <laughs> you gave me the pill. And I was like, now I see them everywhere. They're, 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 I can't stop hearing them. And when I do that, I, I hope that's what we're infecting me. We're giving this earworm. You know, when people listen, you'll be like, whoa, yeah, I'm hearing these all the time now. These combinations of words that actually mean something else. And I teach these explicitly. Should I start teaching them combined right. explicitly? And, and what it also reinforces is the notion that these things that we call phrasal verbs, uh, you know, sound very techy or very technical. But actually they are very common and happen all the time. It's not unusual to hear these things. Or, and so it would not be unusual to want to use them. And as I say, the, the trick sometimes for ourselves in terms of understanding more about languages uh, and how language works is just to listen a little more and start picking up on these 
Uh, these things can happen that sometimes pass us by, but when you start focusing on them like a whole nother, you start seeing that, gosh, that does exist. That does happen all the time. This is not strange or weird. It's actually fairly common. We just never really thought about it. And so, uh, you know, I, I love that idea of the matrix. You know, you took the pill and suddenly you see phrasal verbs everywhere. This, I, have to, I, I, I can imagine a new screensaver now with phrasal verbs going up and down on, on. But, but you're right. I mean, that is exactly what happens. Once you get tuned into something, it's hard not to see it. Exactly. The trick is just to learn from it, you know, say, okay, how can I apply this? And that's where you were, you know, taking the conversation there in terms of we could apply that because we are taking those words, repetition, uh, but we are moving them around and, and you know, presenting them in different ways. So, Russell, maybe a cousin to phrasal verbs is the concept of, or at least in my mind, I think of his cousins, like uh, as keywords, you know, where we have um, the core vocabulary, right? But then we have the fringe vocabulary. I think most people listening to the podcast are going to know what those, those concepts mean. Um, but then what are keywords? What, how, how, and, and why are they important? Yeah. Um, you know, here's another thing that I stole from the word the corpus linguistics is that the concepts of core and fringe are, uh, are, are more statistical than they are judgmental. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes I think people think that, you know, we talk about be, have, and do as being core words and avocado and kumquat as being fringe words. And then they say, but you know, my kiddo loves kumquats and they eat them all the time. That, that's got to be a core word. Well, Actually, in a, in a sense, for that person, it's of course it's an important word, but in the grand scheme of things, when you look at the uh, you know the numbers, if you look at the numbers, you would find that B having to do a way up there and come quarties right right down there. But in corpus linguistics, what they tend to do is to say, well, if you find there's a word which statistically occurs with a higher frequency than you would expect, and typically within uh, you know within a particular uh, environment so you know in the, in the world of food and then rather than call it a fringe word record they call it a keyword because it statistically has meaning which means that although it is in general a low frequency one for this particular situation or person it actually has a much higher value and that's what the, the the notion of keyword is in corpus linguistics and so when we're looking at clients it's, it's, you know, we are going to find that there are, you know, core words to apply to everything. There are fringe words, which are always hovering. Um, but a keyword is one that will suddenly become really important. And the other thing to think about with keywords is, of course, that these actually, you know, can change. It's like a fish in water. You know, a fish can be swimming along the bottom, and then sometimes it goes up to the top, and then it comes down again. Well, a word like Santa, for example, the word Santa is, is now floating back up to the top of the pond and this is going to be a key word for kids vocabulary for the next uh you know 320 days now and it'll be a key word now for some time um but once you get to january and february the the keywordness of it will drop again so it will it will come down again uh so keywords uh, are also these things that sort of drift up and drift down drift in and drift out um, and it's sometimes easier to talk about that than to talk about whether it's a core or a fringe. And I prefer it to say more things like, well, it's like temporary core or permanent fringe or personal core or personal fringe. 
if you make the things distinct and say there's core, there's fringe, and there's keywords, I, I find it easier because then you can also then talk about it from not just the statistical thing, which is the, you know the frequency with which it occurs, but then it also does take into account the sort of importance of it. You know that this is an important word now, and that's fine. Nobody is saying that you know Santa isn't an important word because it's fringe, uh, but when it becomes a keyword, of course that is an importance. So. I, I like that distinction. I like a three-way distinction just because it, it, it sort of helps me think about what we're doing. Um, and and that, that is exactly why I like to say that it is um, a cousin to phrasal verbs is that it mm. is um, something that we should be talking about more maybe and mm -hmm. we don't talk about enough. You hear core and fringe, but keywords mm -hmm. I think is re relatively a new concept. I'm hoping 10 years yeah. from now that this conversation that we're having spitballs into more conversations of more clinicians and people who, um, who work in the field of AAC have more conversations about how it's really a three, three prong, not just yeah. corn fringe. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it also helps a little bit in this, uh, um, you know, discussion that sometimes pops up about, you know, uh, oh, these, these core people, they're focusing on core all the time and they forget all the other good stuff that's out there. Um, and it's a, it, it's a little bit of a red herring uh, or a straw man would be the other one, because actually I don't think people feel that. And in fact, the real skill to teaching core is to be able to teach the core along with fringe, or I would say more, more likely along with keywords, because you need the you know, the core can leverage the keywords, the keywords can leverage the core. Um, nobody is going to spend their entire life using core vocabulary solely, and nobody's going to spend their life with fringe vocabulary. So there is a balance. So there's no distinction in that sense between, uh, uh, you know, focusing on core, focusing on fringe. I think most clinicians are, are fairly level-headed and realize that you have to get the balance. And the only reason, in a sense, that you know, core is as useful as it is, it's simply because it's, it just is more predictable. Given that I've got X amount of time to focus with a client, and I have to choose from the entire Oxford English Dictionary which words to teach, I'm just better off teaching words like stop and that than kumquat and dodecahedron because yes. it's not that they're not important words it's given that i have limited time i'm better off focusing on something that's going to be and that's a frequency decision it's not a decision based on some notion that i think that those are really good words and i hate the others no it's just statistical and you know it's an objective thing and if we are looking at evidence-based practice and evidence-based principles then we need to use some of that objectivity and looking at some of these uh, studies that like we do on frequency of words and, and how they're used and where they're used is helpful because it's based on some sort of evidence and uh, always good to have that. Russell, that's a great way to put it all. I just, I love how you think in that manner. Uh, let me ask you with uh, kind of a final question that I like to ask anyone I get to interview is uh, here you've got 30 years behind you working with AAC. What's driving you now? What's your, what's your next kind of passion? What have you been thinking about in the terms of, of AAC? What are you questing after? Um, you know, I, I'm always looking for new ways to encode language. Basically, how do we get this potential vocabulary of many, many thousands and thousands of words 
in some sort of box. So, you know, whether that's with uh, better word prediction, shorter sequences, better arrangements on grids, uh, you know, how that's done is, is interesting. You know, how do we do that? And, uh, and, and how can we also, in a sense, measure that better? What, what, you know, what are good ways to measure how effective something? And that's something that we can always do there. But uh, the other thing I'm hoping to see is more ways in which people can access devices, you know, better switching. I, you know, we've seen eye gaze become a really good technique for people to use. And the technology, 10 years ago, we had it and it was like $20,000 for an eye gaze system. And now the prices have dropped and we've got good quality. So, you know, looking ahead, what other ways are there of doing this? You know, uh, there's brain computer interface stuff, that sort of stuff is fascinating um, and, and that's something that I've been you know trying to look into as well um, so getting that looking ahead at improving accessibility and then get more stuff into devices and just make devices a little smarter in such a way that they can in a sense almost interact with with clients you know that the not only is the client using the device but the device can actually learn what they're doing and maybe even reconfigure itself based on what it's doing um, so, uh, I think like, I use, but like, I, like AI in some way, yes, yes, yeah, I mean, it's some sort of, you know, because, uh, you know, the system can measure what you're doing. I mean, you know, the system knows what keys you're pressing. So as a simple example, that if I'm hitting the buttons to get words like eat, drink and sleep, maybe the system could prod me to say, you know, what about eating, drinking, and sleeping? Because you've used these over and over. The next most frequent use of those will be the ing form. Why don't we just slide those into the system and, and suggest those to you? So, uh, you know, there's there's ways, I think, in, in which the technology can be a little smarter, uh, you know, as you say, the AI-type approaches to it. So AI-type approaches better access uh, techniques for people so that they can get into the system. And then, uh, you know, ultimately, you know, having just the availability of the systems uh, much easier, you know, it's, it's uh, always a bit of a challenge for people to get a hold of technology. It'd be nice if it was just easier. I don't know whether that, how that's going to happen, but I think we all would like that one. Hey, well, it has been happening, right? Like you said, oh, years sure. ago, getting yeah, a less language system. So let's hope <laughs> we continue on that trajectory where it continues to get easier and easier. I think all of those things you just mentioned are within reach within the next 20 years, don't you think? Oh, oh yeah, or, or yeah certainly. Because I'm telling you, know, again, I'm, I'm now of the age where I can look back 30 years and see the changes there. Um, I, I tell people that Crikey, 30, I, I wasn't even using cell phones. You know, I, 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 I grew up with home phones and cell phones. The first cell phone I had was a brick, you know, yeah. and uh, right. um, the, the brick phone was, was there and it lasted for like an hour. And, uh, <laughs> uh, but, but again, the technology changes uh, and also the practice changes, you know, what we, how we, uh, what we do. You know, I, I, again, I remember uh, about 30 years ago, uh, using uh, AAC technology with folks who had autistic behaviors was, was typically not, not done. You know, there wasn't a lot of work done because the, the focus there was on saying, well, the problem is that it's hard to access this. People would stim on them and, and it wasn't going to work. Uh, but I think the practice has changed. You know, people have said, well, let's try and introduce it in different ways. Let's do, and do that. And now, of course, it's common, you know, to do that. So even practices change over the time. So as you said, in 30 years' time, what practices we'll be using. I mean, I don't know. I will be well and truly retired by then, you know.
It'll be fascinating. I can't wait to find out. So thank you, Russell, again, for coming on the podcast. This was fascinating. I cannot wait to get this out to people. Uh, Everybody, this is Talking With Tech, and we'll see you next time. You're listening to the Exceptional Podcast Network.